Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Coming to you live from New York, I'm Zane Asher. In for my colleague Julia Chatterley. Welcome to First Move. Ukrainian forces retaking more territory as their successful counteroffensive continues. Our report from Ukraine in just a moment. On Wall Street, meantime, let's take a look at U.S. futures. They are certainly higher on the first trading day for October. September, as we all know, was a brutal month uh, for U.S. stocks. For Wall Street, the Dow, the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq all lost about 10 percent. The Dow dropping below 29,000 for the first time since November 2020 the first time in two years. Meantime, oil prices on the rise as OPEC Plus reportedly considers a major cut in production. The group is scheduled to meet on Wednesday. Uh, the British pound also rising after the UK government cancelled a controversial plan to cut the tax rate for the wealthiest people after the proposal sparked a huge backlash and turmoil in financial markets. The U-turn is a major setback for Prime Minister Liz Truss and her finance minister Kwasi Kwarteng. I've said that I've listened, I get the reaction, I've spoken to lots of people up and down the country, I've spoken to constituents, I've spoken to uh, MPs and councillors and other people uh, in, in our uh, political system, but most importantly I've listened uh, to voters and I'm really convinced that the best thing to do now is not to proceed with the abolition of the 45p rate. Dan Canovolo joins us live now from Birmingham, England, where the Conservative Party's annual conference is underway. So, Bianca, we just heard Kwasi Kwanteng there saying, listen, I've spoken to people, I've listened to what people have to say, and I get it. That's why uh, I'm changing my mind when it comes to this 45% tax rate. Um, certainly a much welcome reversal, but how much does this hurt his cred credibility and also the credibility of the Prime Minister as well? Well, the former Chancellor George Osborne has said recently that he's not sure whether or not Kwasi Kwarteng can come back from this. Kwarteng said that he owns the humiliation and contrition of this reversal. Now, the MPs that I've spoken to today and party faithful who are here for conference said that he may well say that he's listened and he gets it. And the Prime Minister says that too. But it took a long time. This is 10 days after the announcement of this policy. And it was something that wasn't telegraphed in the leadership campaign, the idea of tax cuts for the rich, for those that earn more than £150,000 a year. And it also raises a lot of questions about the Chancellor and the Prime Minister's political judgment. Because as you know, Zane, this particular controversial part of the economic package was worth £2 billion of a £45 billion package. But it's the idea that the government felt that at a time when the cost of living crisis is biting people throughout the country, they don't know if they can afford their fuel and fuel, that the government thought it was a good idea to send a message saying, well, we're going to cut taxes for the wealthiest. We're going to remove that EU cap on bankers' bonuses. That is leading people to question their judgment. There's also the communications of this. Both the Prime Minister and the Chancellor have accepted that they didn't lay the ground well for the announcement of this package, that markets were even more spooked because of the fact that there wasn't a communication strategy or really any communication at all. 
So then in answer to the question as to whether or not he can survive beyond this, I think it really is a precarious point for both the Chancellor and the Prime Minister, because even though they've U-turned, a lot of damage has been done. There's questions about their political judgment. They've now lost so much momentum to the Labour Party, who's soaring ahead in the polls, and they've done damage to the party brand. Uh, on the one hand, by undermining the Conservative reputation for economic credibility because they sent the markets into a spiral, and on the other hand, playing into one of the most toxic narratives against the Conservative Party, that it's one rule for them, another for the rest of the country, that they're on the side of the rich, the bankers, and not ordinary people's name. And how divisive overall have these policies, these sort of tax cuts combined with a huge amount of spending, how divisive have these policies been for within the Conservative Party overall? Oh, hugely divisive. In fact, I'm not sure even divisive is the, is the word because there's not a huge amount of people that think this was a good idea. And even the people that believe in these economic policies that you can't tax your way to growth do admit that the way this has been handled is basically, you know, a book, a, the, the first chapter of a book on how not to start a new government because it has been an unmitigated political disaster. The people I've spoken to today from within the party who might be standing as future candidates or MPs themselves are embarrassed by this, they're frustrated, they're also annoyed that the Prime Minister didn't consult her cabinet when devising these economic policies and it was a decision taken by her and the Chancellor. There's, there's a huge amount of frustration there. In fact, the mood, saying reminds me of around 2016, 2017 in the aftermath of Brexit. It's that level of political division and uncertainty within the party. And given that they're in such a difficult political situation, that the brand has been so tarnished by the Boris Johnson years and Partygate, the idea that they've slumped double digits further in the polls is obviously making all these MPs here today concerned that they'll last after the next election. I think they all feel like they're in deep political jeopardy. The divisions are very deep. And a lot of people don't think that the Prime Minister has the charisma, has the emotional political intelligence to rebuild the party and to remake her position after being in these dire straits just a month into the job. That's an important reminder. She's only been on the job for about four weeks. Bianca Novolo, live for us there. Thank you so much. Right, oil prices are surging on reports that OPEC Plus is considering cutting oil output by more than a million barrels per day at its meeting later on this week. Prices have been recently falling on fears about the health of the global economy. Markets around the world have been flashing warning signs that the world is headed towards a recession. The question now is when is that going to happen? Mark Stewart joins us live now. So it's interesting because the Biden administration has actually been pushing and trying to encourage the Saudis to increase oil output. Uh, just walk us through what this potential change will mean for the global economy. Right, Zane. As you well know, oil by nature is very volatile. It's a very volatile commodity. And even a whisper of some change to production, especially a reduction in supply, can cause prices to rise. Put that with this backdrop of the war in Ukraine and, as you mentioned, pleas by the Biden administration to increase production. So, as you can see, we are moving into a very unpredictable environment. Um, I want to point out this involves OPEC+. Plus. So this involves the cartel nations 
plus Russia and other allies. There is some reporting by Reuters I do want to point out. One source felt that Moscow in particular would like to see a cut of one million barrels. Uh, but other sources have said that these cuts could exceed that. Uh, some context here. If this happens, it would be the biggest cut to supply since 2020 at the beginning of the pandemic, when basically we saw the world slow down. People didn't move. People didn't drive as much. They didn't fly as much, therefore prompting that cut. Uh, Zane, though, we should get some clarity uh, by midweek, by Wednesday. That is when OPEC is scheduled to meet. Okay, so clarity in about two days from now. But the expected oil production cuts is really the last thing the global economy needs, especially when you factor in what inflation has done to the global economy uh, as well. Just walk us through that. Right. It is almost like a grocery store list of signs of problems that we have been witnessing in the economy. Uh, Let's Take, for example, the U.S. dollar. Right now, the U.S. dollar is very strong. It's good for Americans traveling abroad. But if you are a company in Europe, for example, depending on trade for business, that will cause your cost to rise. That doesn't necessarily help in this potential narrative of a global slowdown, perhaps a global recession. Uh, We've seen American consumers fall back. We have seen the markets, especially in the U.S., uh, see declines. We're clearly in many days into a bear bear market. Uh, That's less money changing hands. And then, as Bianca was reporting on, the turmoil in the United Kingdom that has caused many investors to look twice. Um, the, the notion of a global recession, Zane, based off the economists I'm hearing with, there, there are many different perspectives that if or when that would happen. But clearly, the signs that we are seeing right now are troubling for the future, at least in the short term. All right. Uh, Mark Stewart, life for us there. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Right. Credit, Credit Suisse shares have hit record lows down around uh, 7% in Zurich today amid speculation about the Swiss bank's financial health. The shares have actually lost around 60% of their value so far this year. Paul and Monica joins us to break this down. So, Paul, just walk us through what prompted initial concerns about the state of the bank's finances in the first place. Yeah, Zane. I mean, obviously, we have seen concerns about the health of the global economy and Europe in particular, and that is a big problem for Credit Suisse. But make no mistake, Credit Suisse has been struggling for several years now. You go back to the Archegos family office that collapsed, and Credit Suisse had a lot of exposure to that financial meltdown. That has hurt the bank. But right now, what's going on is that you have credit default swaps, which are widening, which is suggesting that there is a lot of financial stress at the bank. And that is hearkening back to painful memories of when we saw credit default swaps widening at places like Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers in 2008. So obviously, anytime you are in the same boat as some of those banks from 14 years ago, Those of us that remember the global financial crisis, it was not a lot of fun for big banks. This is not to suggest that Credit Suisse is in that type of dire straits, but the company obviously is worried enough that the CEO is trying to reassure employees that things are under control. And when you hear news like this, I mean, what does it mean for the U.S. Federal Reserve? Is it likely that the U.S. Federal Reserve is going to ease off pressure Uh, given sort of the stress and the strain that some banks are coming under? 
Yeah, that is a fantastic question, Zane. And when you look at what futures are doing this morning, it's interesting that the U.S. stock market is set to open with a pretty healthy gain. Granted, we could lose those gains as the day goes on, but there might be this somewhat counterintuitive, perverse sort of notion that investors in the U.S. might be taking the news about Credit Suisse as a sign that the Fed will have to pivot and that they won't be able to raise rates as aggressively in order to try and combat some of the financial stresses that might come in if you were to have Credit Suisse or other European banks go under. Again, I think it's a bit strange that investors would be celebrating because, as we know, inflation is hasn't gone away yet. The Fed probably needs to raise rates to get inflation under control, but there are worries about the Fed going too far and causing a recession. So if you do have a financial crisis causing the Fed to pause, U.S. investors might at least temporarily cheer that. All right, Paula Monica, live for us there. Thank you so much. I want to turn to Ukraine now, where President Zelensky's forces say they're retaking more territory from the Russians. It follows the liberation of the eastern city of Lyman just hours after Moscow illegally claimed it. From there, Nick Payne Walsh has more. It may not look like much, but this is where Putin's defeat in Donetsk began. A prize from the last century, perhaps. But trains and tracks are still how Russia wages war today. Lieman, what's left of it, now freed of Russia? Well, this is what it was all about. The central railway hub here now in Ukrainian hands and devastated by the fighting. And this was such a seminal part of Russia's occupation of Donetsk and Luhansk. The concern for Moscow is the knock-on effect this is going to have for their forces all the way to the Russian border. On the town's edges, we saw no sign of the hundreds of Russian prisoners or dead that had been expected to follow Moscow's strategic defeat here, nor inside it either. Perhaps they have already been taken away. Instead, utter silence. Only local bicycles on the streets. Several residents told us the Russians actually left in large numbers on Friday. They left in the night and the day, people said. I didn't see it myself, but they say they sat on their APCs and their bags were falling off as they drove. They ran like this. Okay. It would be remarkable timing that Russia fled Liman in the very same hours that Putin was signing papers declaring here Russian territory and holding a rally on Red Square. A similar story in the local administration where the only signs of Russia left are burned flags. They ran away without saying a word to anybody, he says. It was bad. No work, no gas, no power, nothing. The shops didn't work. It truly feels as if there is nobody left. A ghostly silence here, apart from occasional shelling and small arms fire. And it is, for so much of this town, utterly destroyed. So many locals, we're told, leaving when the Ukrainian push towards it began. But now it's just this utter ghostliness in a place that's such a strategic defeat for Russia. Gunfire in the distance. They're nervous some Russians may be left. Outside what's left of the court, the constant change and violence is too much for some. Her husband just arrested. 
Шапку одеваешь. Шапку снимаешь, шапку одеваешь. Что это за жизнь? Да, вчера 72 года, 73 год. Я не могу спокойно, как крыса в подвале. С подвала вылазить. Сказать, а что ж это такое? Только вы же это не покажете, понимаете? Вы это не покажете. Вчера Украина зашла, проверила документы. На пропала мужчина, пропал мужчина. Мужчина пропал. Вот вы зуродела. Зуродела. Шапки одно, шапки сами. А люди страдают, блин. Одни бьют, другие бьют. А мы плачем. The Ukrainian troops we did see had already stopped celebrating. There is little time. They're on the move again. Another Russian target further east, Kremina, in their sights. And those left in Le Mans, a town cursed to have these bars of rusting steel running through it, are gathering the ruins to burn for fuel with winter ahead. Left in the wake of Russia's collapse here, a town they took weeks to occupy, but only hours to leave. I think Peyton Walsh reporting there. All right, still to come here on First Move, Liz Truss's UK government is already off to a rocky start. I discuss more about the decision to reverse those controversial tax cuts with Callum Pickering uh, from Berenberg Bank after the break. Also, a royal reveal for new coins featuring King Charles, the CEO of the Royal Mint, joins us later on in the show. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. As we discussed earlier on the show, the UK is making a U-turn on its decision to give a massive tax cut to its wealthiest citizens after nationwide outrage. The pound hitting historic lows and chaos in financial markets. The UK Finance Minister Kwasi Kwarteng said the plan had become a distraction. Prime Minister Liz Truss said that she stands by her economic policies but admitted that mistakes were made. Nino de Santos uh, has more. To some, they were the dynamic duo, bold enough to unleash the UK's stymied potential. To others, a dangerous combination, risking it all to stave off a recession that may prove inevitable either way. After crushing the currency by unveiling billions of tax cuts funded by billions more borrowing, Britain's new government made a sharp U-turn on Monday morning, abandoning its plan to abolish the highest rate of income tax of 45%. I've said that I've listened, I get the reaction, the best thing to do now is not to proceed with the abolition of the 45p rate. In the days that followed the announcement of Britain's mini-budget, pension funds have nearly collapsed and the Bank of England has had to shore up sovereign debt. One of the reasons this budget was so badly received is that Downing Street's newest occupants initially declined to have their figures scrutinised by the usual fiscal watchdog. The scant detail provided only sparked further outrage. And although the government has said that they'll provide more information before the end of November, many fear that with the economy on the brink, there's no time to spare. And as members of their own Conservative Party gather for their annual conference, the pressure is mounting. One way they can balance the budget and reassure markets is by slashing spending, a risky move given an acute cost-of-living crisis. Lots of people are saying that if you want to get to some sort of fiscally sustainable position, having had all these tax cuts, you need to cut spending. And that arithmetically is true. I find it quite hard to see where you get big spending cuts. Remember, we've had a decade through which we've had really, really tight spending. 
Other policies, like reversing a moratorium on fracking, have also stoked ire, as have reports in British media of a cosy relationship between the Chancellor and hedge funds that have made millions betting against the pound. A survey by Servation last week gave the opposition Labour Party a 21-point lead should an election be called tomorrow, the widest that margin has been at in 12 years of Tory rule. I think Conservative MPs are in despair, in truth. Um, the Conservatives have generally won election victories on the basis that they are um, more competent uh, on the economy. It's very hard to see how the Conservative Party can recover. But it didn't have to be this way. Truss was picked by her party's members over former Chancellor Rishi Sunak, who had advocated fiscal prudence and warned that sterling would suffer under her proposals. Now that it has, inflation is worse, rates are rising, and among Tories, times are suddenly tenser than they have been in decades. Nina Dos Santos, CNN, in London. Ms Truss has inherited a number of problems, including a cost of living crisis with inflation at 10%, the highest, by the way, of any G7 economy. Joining me live now is Callum Pickering. He's a senior economist at Berenberg Bank. Callum, thank you so much for being with us. First of all, your thoughts on this reversal uh, by Kwasi Kwarteng. Well, it was a political own goal to introduce this tax change in the first place. Uh, from an economics point of view, actually, the market reaction to this news matters more than the impact of the tax on the underlying economy, even though it's, of course, a big cut for the very well off. It actually only represents about two and a half billion pounds, uh, which is a very small number relative to the size of the economy. But so far, the market reaction has been I would say cautiously positive on the basis that it looks as if the government is heading towards a more sustainable fiscal path. Liz Truss, speaking over the weekend, said that one of her mistakes was that she should have laid the groundwork better um, before announcing these, um, uh, these tax cuts and also increasing spending as well. What should she have done prior to announcing these measures, do you think? At the very least, what she should have done is ask the independent Office for Budget Responsibility, which is the UK's fiscal watchdog, to publish a set of forecasts, borrowing figures and inflation numbers based on her tax proposals. That would at least give given markets a benchmark from which they could have then adjusted their borrowing costs for the UK, uh, their inflation outlook. That would be a minimum. And optimum out outcome would have been to actually stagger these tax cuts and then announce some spending adjustments so that actually they would not risk any additional inflation or affect the UK's financial stability. <coughs> How likely is it that Kwasi Kwarteng is going to stick to some of his other policies? He intimated just a few weeks ago that there would be further tax cuts down the line. How likely is it that he's going to stick to some of the other policies given the fallout that we've seen this time around? I think appetite for the tax cuts, both within the Conservative Party, uh, the wider UK, and even in markets at this stage, is probably low. The two other elements would be supply-side reform, which is essentially um, adjusting regulations in markets and for businesses to try and make the economy more dynamic, more competitive. Um, let's see what the detail involves. Often, these policies go one of two ways. They're either very good and they help economies improve their trend growth. That would be the case of the UK under Thatcher. Often, well, occasionally they go the wrong way and they introduce market failures, which worsen underlying performance. So let's be neutral on that for now. 
where there'll be some uncertainty is really around spending in order to offset the borrowing that will be needed for these tax cuts, it's probably likely that some departments will see their spending frozen for at least a year or two. That will be politically unpopular. Right. And that has been uh, the fear. And despite the fact that they are eliminating these particular tax cuts for the wealthy, um, the UK economy is still in dire straits. Liz Truss inherited an economy with a significant cost of living crisis. Obviously, inflation is hovering at around 10%, the highest of any G7 nation. Um, where does the UK economy head from here, even with this uh, reversal by Kwasi Kwarteng just announced today? Well, the, the reversal probably doesn't change the dynamic for the economy, uh, at least in the near term. Um, inflation in the G7 is similar rates. Most advanced economies are between 9 and 10%, which is where the UK is. UK is really facing a European-style inflation linked to these high energy costs. It will likely persist through winter, whereas in the US, perhaps there's some evidence that things are rolling over. The UK is heading for recession. It's been my clear view that we're heading for recession now for a few months. In fact, actually, these policy announcements, at least in the short run, because they've tightened financial conditions so much, will actually deepen the recession. So probably we're heading for a fall in GDP of around 2.5%. Now, historically, that would not be a huge recession, but it will be very painful because it will entail a lot of inflation and it will force the Bank of England to react with high interest rates. That's not what you would like to do during a recession. My best bet would be by this time next year, the economy will be recovering and inflation will have rolled over. But the risks across the advanced world at this stage are to the downside. And how much is what's happening in the UK in terms of the UK economy a bad omen or a negative signal in terms of what you expect to happen um, with the global economy overall? Well, I, th I think what governments need to be careful of is not making the mistake that the UK government has made. Um, actually, some of the details of the policies, some of the tax adjustments, the plans for supply-side reform, um, are policies which point in the right direction. This is a standard formula for improving economies with weak trend growth. It's what Mr. Macron in France has been pursuing, and it seems to be working. Germany did the same thing in the 2000s, again, Britain in the 1980s. But what the UK has suffered from, unfortunately, is because of Brexit, because of the noise around the negotiations on the Irish border, um, is a lack of credibility in markets. And so when the UK tries to take this gamble, it's failed. Markets don't believe that this government is credible. And so before other governments try to borrow money, even just to subsidize energy policies, they should just check with markets. Are we actually credible? If you're credible, then go ahead and borrow. Markets will probably reward you. If you lack credibility, you'll be penalized. And the UK has found out the hard way, actually, that when it needed to use its credibility, it really didn't have much to begin with. Right. Callum Pickering, live for us there. Thank you so much. We appreciate Thank you. it. All right. Brazil's presidential race heads to a second round runoff after neither Lula da Silva or Jair Bolsonaro scores an outright win. That story next. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks opening. Let's take a look here. Higher uh, on the first trading day of the quarter, Wall Street has posted three consecutive quarters of losses so far this year. Uh, let's talk about Credit Suisse because shares at the bank are falling as concerns rise over its financial health. Tesla is also sliding after announcing lower than expected deliveries for the third quarter. I'm going to turn to Iran now. Police clashed with students at a university in Tehran on Sunday as a crackdown on anti-government demonstrations continued across the country. 
The university's newspaper says the security forces fired pellets at a large group of students. Protests erupted across Iran last month after 22-year-old Masa Amini died in police custody. She was detained by the morality police for allegedly not complying with rules on women's dress. CNN's Jamari Karadze has been following this story very closely from Istanbul. So, Jamana, this happened at the University of Sharif, which would be the equivalent, the Iranian equivalent of, let's say, MIT or Harvard. It's one of the sort of more prominent universities in the country. And even though it is a site of a lot of student protests, the fact that you have students clashing with security forces, potentially gunshots being fired, uh, also tear gas being dispersed. I mean, this is significant, Jamana. It is very significant, as you mentioned, one of the most prestigious universities in the country. Some of Iran's best and brightest uh, go to this university. And Zane, just to explain to you what was going on over the weekend, you know, there were questions last week towards the end of the week. Are we seeing these protests coming to an end? Are we seeing less people taking to the streets? Is the uh, crackdown really intensified? But what happened over the weekend is you saw thousands of students taking to the streets, protesting on university campuses across the country. Um, and, you know, what started with these calls for justice and accountability for the death of Masa Amini has really now morphed into these louder, bolder calls for regime change, for the downfall of the Islamic Republic. And so yesterday evening, Sunday evening, uh, Tehran time, we started getting reports of some sort of an incident unfolding at Sharif University. And you and I have spoken about this a lot over the past couple of weeks. It's very difficult for us to call people to find out what's going on because of the communication restrictions that are in place that the government has put in there, the internet blackout. But over the past few hours, we have gotten statements from the university uh, itself, from its newspaper. We have also spoken to an eyewitness who was there, and we've also gotten some video that has emerged. And if you piece it all together, it really paints a picture of a night of horror that unfolded. As you mentioned, security forces appear to have used uh, metal pellets, birdshot, fired at these young students and professors at the university. They were using paintball. They used batons to beat up the uh, students. And this young man that we spoke to earlier, he said he got a phone call from a friend of his saying, please come and save us. So he rushed over and he says it was a war zone in his words. He said there was blood everywhere. Now we don't have casualty figures. We don't know how many people were hurt. We don't know how many people were detained. A lot of concern for the safety of those students who were detained. What is clear right now, Zain, is this government is clearly determined to crush these protests. We haven't yet seen them unleash their full brutal force that they've not hesitated to use in the past to crush protests. So speaking to that young man who has also taken parts in protests, we asked him if, you know, what they saw happen yesterday is going to stop them. And he said, absolutely not. It has made them more determined to continue. And he's describing this as the point of no return. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, these protests showing no signs of abating despite the crackdown by security forces, despite internet blackouts as well. Jamani Karachi, live for us there. Thank you so much.
All right, Brazil's presidential race is heading for a second round runoff after neither candidate won in an absolute majority in Sunday's first ballot. Former President Lula da Silva finished ahead of the incumbent Jair Bolsonaro, but support for Mr. Bolsonaro actually turned out to be uh, stronger than opinion polls predicted. CNN's Shasta Darlington is live for us in Sao Paulo. So Bolsonaro did much better than expected. Lula also coming out and saying, look, I typically win elections in the runoff stage, in the second round. Um, Shasta, what happens next? Oh, well, that, that's right, Zane. There were two main headlines coming out of Sunday's elections. As you mentioned, uh, the left-wing former President Lula did get the most votes, but he didn't get over that 50% threshold, so we're going to have this runoff against the incumbent right-wing President Jair Bolsonaro. Um, we're also going to, unfortunately for Brazilians, uh, face another month of the most polarizing electoral race in recent history. It's been marred by political violence, by Bolsonaro's attacks on democratic institutions. And the other takeaway, as you mentioned, is that the, the race was a lot tighter than anticipated. Polls had predicted that Lula would be ahead by a wide margin, even double digits. In the end, we saw that he did get the 48.4% of the vote, which was roughly predicted, but he was only five percentage points ahead of Bolsonaro. Take a listen to what the candidates had to say. We overcame today's lie. Statistics saying it would be 50-30 result. We overcame that lie. We are moving forward where all is now equal, and we will better demonstrate for the Brazilian people. Now there will be a face-to-face -face debate with the president of the republic to see if he keeps telling lies or if he will tell the truth to the Brazilian people. So what we saw is Bolsonaro coming out stronger than anticipated. Um, and in fact, his right-wing party did extremely well in legislative elections. They're now the biggest bloc in the Senate. Both candidates, however, have a, a tough four weeks ahead. Um, they both have extremely high rejection rates. We're going to see um, we're going to see Lula trying to convince voters that he can bring back the boom times that really benefited the poorest in Brazil during his two terms in office. And we'll hear, hear Bolsonaro trying to remind voters that Lula was subsequently put in jail as part of a massive corruption scandal, although those convictions were annulled by a Supreme Court. Expect a lot of polarization and a lot of tensions going ahead, Zane. Right, because Lula couldn't run uh, in 2018, couldn't even vote because of uh, those charges. Right, Shasta Darlington, life for us there. Thank you so much. In South Africa, plans are underway to construct the world's largest green ammonia plant. Ammonia is currently used in the fertilizer and mining industries. The $4.6 billion project could soon be helping the decarbonization of the global shipping industry. It's a massive green field site. Thousands of hectares of land in Nelson Mandela Bay in the Eastern Cape. Its backers, Hive Energy, say that the $4.6 billion green ammonia project will be sustainable and create thousands of green energy jobs. We looked at sites all over Africa, all over the world, and we came to the inevitable conclusion that this would be the best site to set up a green ammonia plant. And there are many reasons for that. They have infrastructure in place, road infrastructure, there's the water desalination plant, so we've got fresh water available to us. There's plenty of land, there's over 9,000 hectares of available land here. 
Demand for ammonia is growing internationally. Its main use is to make fertilizers and explosives in mining. But it's a cleaner green version that is being touted as having a bright future. Green ammonia is normal ammonia that's made using renewable energy, so it's completely clean. It's not made using fossil fuels. This means this is a completely clean process. Its potential as an alternative fuel for the shipping sector that's exciting the industry most. It will start replacing heavy fuel oils for ships and it will replace diesel. So that will become the fuel of the future, particularly in the maritime industry. Preparations for the construction of the plant are already underway. It's set to create thousands of jobs in a region where they are badly needed. For us in the Eastern Cape, the unemployment rate is sitting at over 50%. So which means an, an investment of this nature with the number of jobs that are going to be created, it's going to be very big. Hive Energy says it plans to create 20,000 construction and permanent jobs and that more will be created when they begin exporting to the continent. Both Mozambique and Zambia import ammonia. They import they have huge commercial farms and ammonia is an import for them. We see huge opportunities in Africa for inter-trade, cross-border cooperation. Hive Energy says that it aims to begin production of green ammonia at the plant in 2026 and that through its greener energy alternative, it should help in climate change mitigation. Eleni Jokos, CNN. After more than two and a half years, Hong Kong is lifting many of its COVID restrictions. The city had some of the strictest quarantine rules in the world. Now its struggling tourism industry is showing signs of life. But whether Hong Kong can completely revitalize itself and bounce back from the pandemic is still in question. CNN's Chrissy Lustau has more. Rain or shine, the players train for the International Rugby Sevens Tournament in Hong Kong. For more than 40 years, its fans from around the world would come every year for the sport and the spectacle until the pandemic. Now, after a long hiatus, they are thrilled to play again. It's been three years. Three years? Yeah, three years or so since the last Hong Kong Sevens. And, you know, we're really excited. And you can just tell the rugby community in general, really excited. It's so good for Hong Kong. Also coming to Hong Kong is the international pop sensation Blackpink in January. And in November, a global banking summit. The travel industry is buzzing. Expedia.com says searches for hotels in the city jumped 50%. So we can anticipate the business audience coming back to Hong Kong, as well as travelers that has always favored Hong Kong as a, a culinary destination. So we can see a little bit of that trend coming back in the coming months. With the easing of border rules, the city hopes to reclaim its spot as an international business hub and reboot its economy. But for many, like this market vendor, they don't have months to wait. My most frequent customers used to be tourists. Locals rarely shop here. It's been terrible, very terrible. There was no business at all. It's been a fruitless labor. Business has been static. Tough COVID-19 measures have devastated businesses, including the iconic Jumbo Kingdom floating restaurant, now no more. Max shut his restaurant last year after nine years in operation. A lot of restaurants right now are about closing down, filing, uh, in, in filing uh, bankruptcy or try to, sell, uh, try to sell because the summer was really, really hard. 
He says it will take more than simply ending the COVID rules to revive the city. We need to be providing, you know, um, excitement for Hong Kong because right now we, we, we lost so many things. Nothing's happening in the convention center, there's no concert, it's, Hong Kong is not in a big scene anymore. Before the pandemic, it was with big scenes like these in the stands of the Rugby Sevens, famous for its legendary party energy. Today, rugby players practice in the rain, ahead of the return of the big tournament and big hopes for the revival of a city. Christy Lu Stout, CNN, Hong Kong. Right, uh, stay with the first move. We'll have more, more news after this short break. In the UK, there are about 27 billion coins in cir- circulation featuring the late Queen Elizabeth. Eventually, they'll be joined by notes and coins with the face of King Charles. And these are the first. Today, the Royal Mint has begun selling commemorative coins. In line with tradition, the king's portrait faces to the left, the opposite direction to his mother's. The Royal Mint is the world's largest producer of coins. It makes billions of coins and blanks for about 60 uh, countries. Anne Jessup is the CEO of the Royal Mint. She joins us live now. So, and there has been intense demand here, intense demand to snap up some of these commemorative coins, so much so that your website even crashed. I understand that it's back online now, but how are you keeping up with demand? Yeah, so um, we're delighted today to be um, launching the coin, the very first coin that has um, the effigy. That's the portrait of, of King Charles on. And the website has been so busy. We had over 120,000 people register interest over the weekend. And so we've been really working really hard to to keep up with it. Um, But um, we've got um, a real range of coins. So for people who want a really expensive one that may be that may be in gold, but but also those who pe- people who may want want a, a less expensive one as well. So we've got lots of people coming to the site, um, and we have twenty thousand people register with their interest from uh, America. We were delighted to see over the weekend. And just in terms of, we're seeing it right now on our screen. This commemorative coin with. King Charles's image on it. He had some input into this, I understand. And and just walk us through what his reaction to it has been. Yeah. So um, we understand he's very satisfied from, from his staff. Um, he did have some input. Uh, the Royal Mint, um, we quite often make um, royal coins and therefore we have photographs from which the um, artists worked. Martin Jennings, who, who is a really accomplished um, uh, artist, sculptor. And um, then over the last two or three weeks, um, for the final detail, then we've been liaising um, with the palace. And from January 1st next year, 2023, from what I understand, you'll only, the Royal Mint will only be making coins that feature King Charles's image. But both coins and both images will be in co-circulation for some time. How long does that period of transition take? Because um, you're not going to sort of, we're not going to be able to sort of um, only have King Charles's face on a coin for some time. It takes about 20 years from what I understand. Yeah, that's right. So um, most people in the UK really can't remember us having any other monarch because obviously she was on, uh, the, the late Queen was on the throne for 70 years. But yeah, it's absolutely normal for coins to co-circulate. So they last for about 20 years. So we will be seeing coins with um, the late Queen and uh, the new King Charles 
um, co-circulating for about 20 years. And really interestingly, the Royal Mint um, has been uh, in existence for 1,100 years. And we've always marked, um, as the monarchs changed, the, obviously the new monarch goes on to the um, new coin. And often, you know, hundreds of years ago, that was the only way that people got to see what their monarch looked like. Oh. No social media, no television. <laughs> so real pieces of history in the past, yeah. That's fascinating. And how much of a privilege is it for you, just for you yourself, to be part of history in this way? Oh, I, I can't, I can't explain. Um, it is just so fantastic. Uh, it's a real privilege. I'm um, called the, um, I'm the chief executive of the Royal Mint, but I'm also the deputy master of the Mint, the first female in our 1,100-year history. Incredible. And, um, you know, I take, yeah, I know, I know. I take <laughs> my role incredible. really seriously in terms of the official role that we have in the UK. You know, obviously we sell coins as well. But our, my official role is really to make sure that in UK coins we have the right portraits with the right effigies and they they are absolutely effigies to be proud of. And I really love this new portrait. I think uh, the, the um, new king looks really, um, really shows his warmth um, in the portrait. I think it's, it's really, um, really accomplished. And there are some key differences uh, between the portrait, the coin featuring King Charles's images and his late mother, because the faces are, are basically pointing in different directions. And uh, Queen Elizabeth is wearing a crown and Charles is not. Explain why. That's right. Yes. So um, in history, and nobody quite knows the, the reason why these, these traditions happen, but in history, um, each preceding, each um, monarch faces the opposite way than the preceding monarch. So um, King Charles is facing to the left and his mother faced the opposite way. And also in history, um, female monarchs tend to um, have a crown or I think Queen Victoria had some uh -huh. headband on one of her hers. But actually, and, the, the male monarchs tend not to. And, and we actually have to leave it there because we are out of time. But I could talk about this with you all day. Fascinating okay. stuff. And Jessup, life for us there. Lovely to talk to you too. Uh, and that is it for the show. I'll be with you in a couple of hours for One World. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. You're watching CNN. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.